You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Many of you guys have all experienced this at one point, but when you know someone who's nearing death, uh, the word goes out, and what does the family do? They, they congregate together, they gather together, and they surround the loved one who is, who is dying because maybe they're sick, maybe from old age, and so they're dying, and so the family members, they take time to simply kind of express their love, right, and they say their goodbyes to the individual. That's essentially the scene here in Genesis chapter 49. Okay, that's what's going on. Jacob, the patriarch of the family, he calls for his 12 grown sons to come, uh, knowing that he was near death. And so they come, they gather beside him. And the thing was, Jacob, he didn't call for them to, for them to say their goodbyes. Rather, he called them because he wanted to say something to them. Okay, <laughs> right? It wasn't just about... Oh, yeah, sons, I miss you, but I got, I, got a, I got a will for you. I got something to say to you all. So one by one, he addresses his sons, and he gives blessings. But he also gives anti-blessings, and he also makes these predictions concerning all, these, all, all of his sons. And so that as, as we draw nearer to the end of Genesis, by the way, we have one more chapter. There. <laughs> um, I think, it would, I think it would be good to take smaller bites out of this in the final chapter because in one sense, it may seem strange because in one sense, one sense it's just one long speech by Jacob, right? One long speech made by one man um, on one occasion. But on the other hand, it's actually a dozen speeches to his sons in which I think each part contains a lot of godly reminders, a lot of teachable moments. And so that's what we're going to do for the next just few weeks as we wrap up Genesis. Can you all say amen? amen. All right, turn to your neighbor and say, I've been enjoying Genesis. <laughs> oh, really? That's amazing. Thank you. Praise God. So the first point is this. God, he's building a kingdom. Everyone say kingdom. Now, you know what's hard for me? Um, it's sometimes seeing the big picture. Do you have that problem? Seeing the big picture of all things? As the saying goes, he can't see the forest for the trees. Now, I don't know if you're the same way, but sometimes... I'm just fixated on what's ahead. Maybe, maybe that's just a guy thing. I don't know. I'm just fixated on what's immediately ahead of me. And while it's good, I think, to sometimes focus on simply what's in front of you, I think it is maybe even more important to see the whole forest, the big picture, if you want to call it that, rather than simply the tree. So let me describe this whole chapter for you uh, in a minute. So the sons of Jacob, they gathered around their dying father, and there are actually three groups of sons, three. The first group were the sons of Leah, his first wife, right? And their names were Reuben, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar. The second group were the four sons of the wives' handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah. They were Dan, Gan, sorry, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And then the final group were the two sons of his favored wife, Rachel, and they were, of course, Joseph and Benjamin. So we got these three groups of sons, 
And so what does Jacob tell them all? In verse 1, he says, you know, gather yourself together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So this, this is the prediction part. But in verse 28, he also gives them an appropriate blessing for each, each and every one of them. Now, when you look at these predictions and these blessings, they all have like the similar overlap, this familiar theme. Firstly, he speaks about their distinct role in the community, their distinct role actually about, you know, actually he's, half of what he says to all his sons has to do with who will rule the family and who will not rule, essentially. So what is Jacob doing here? He's not really going into their deep personal lives. You might probably think that, that the daddy's dying, and so he brings each individual son, and he wants to speak some, something profound, something personal, something intimate. Son, you remember that time when we went fishing? And what, what, what a great time. And bring up some sort of moment. He didn't do any of that. He didn't go into their personal lives. Instead, he was calling them out on something. He was calling out the tendency for individualism, and he was emphasizing the utmost importance of community, essentially saying this, sons, gather here together, and I want to tell you, each and every single one of you, something near and dear to my heart, and something that I believe the God, that the Lord is telling me to express to you, and that is this, it is not about you. Gee, thanks, gee, dad, thanks. This is really your last will and testament. It's not about you. It is about us as a people. It is about us as a nation. It is about us as a distinct people. It is about us as the kingdom of God, of God's covenant people. It is not about you. In fact, from Genesis 35, God said, a nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. It's not about you. Then in the previous chapter, in 48, God says, I'll make you fruitful, and you will increase in numbers. I will make you a community of people. It's not about you. So Jacob, he's not exactly expressing personal concern for each of his sons. Instead, the patriarch is saying, don't live. He wants to do something amazing. He wants to build you all into his kingdom people. That's what he wants. Turn to your neighbor and say, be the kingdom people. Essentially, it's not about the trees. It's about the forest. Do you guys see it? We can't miss it here. So what does kingdom living look like? What does it mean, first of all? Well, firstly, the kingdom of God is completely different from the world. To live as a kingdom person is completely different from living as a person of the world. Now, I want to encourage you all, maybe tonight or in the days to come, to read over Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And you might recall what Matthew chapter 5 is because it's the Sermon on the Mount. It is a collection of Jesus' teaching and preaching. That's Matthew chapter 5. But why? Why should we read this chapter? Because it's here that Jesus really talks about kingdom living. In fact, Jesus would continue to teach about the kingdom of God for all three years during his earthly ministry. And his teachings always wowed people. Everything he spoke about, this kingdom lifestyle, this kingdom living, these kingdom expectations, these kingdom prophecies, all these things, it just amazed and dazzled people because it was so revolutionary. It was so radical. It went against the entire grain of the world. And people were like, this truth is something I've never heard before. Kingdom life, it elevates Christ as king. Jesus, you are king, period. You are not a king. You are the king. But not only that, kingdom living means I will promote others before myself. I will lift up others before myself. Already that idea would be abandoned here in this world that we live in. Because in this world, 
what is our king? What is the king for most of the people here in this world? It is, isn't it wealth? That's my king. That's what I'm striving for. That's what I want to pursue. That's what I want to please. It is, isn't it success? Isn't it accolades and, 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 and diplomas and degrees and, and whatever you want to call it? Isn't it instant gratification? Isn't it your own personal ambitions? Isn't it the pleasures that we seek? These are the kings that we have. And what about in terms of elevating others before us? Uh-uh. This idea here in this world is all about I will trample on other people. I will discard people. I will use and abuse people if I have to so that I can walk and build and climb my way up. I want to lord over people. I want to be served by the people so I can get what I want, when I want it, and however way I want it. So no, I will not place others above me. I want to place myself above them. So in Jesus' sermon, Jesus says, you got to love your neighbors. Duh, right? But he says, hey, don't hate your enemies, but love them too. Not only do we love our neighbors, but we're supposed to love our enemies. Now, do you guys have that loud neighbor? If you don't, let me introduce you to mine. But Jesus says, you know that person, David, Grace, that we're always just like every night, we're like banging on the wall. For the love of God, it is midnight. Why are you playing Call of Duty or whatever it is? I don't know. Some sort of, some sort of movie or I don't get it. And, these, and, and not to say that you can't play games. There's no age restriction. But these, this couple, they're like almost 70 years old. And you hear, da, 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 da. I'm just like, I don't, my kid is about to cry and wake up again, and I'm banging on the door, and I'm saying, Lord, I just, I, I want horrible things to happen, but then God is saying, love your enemies, pray for those who hurt you. I'm like, oh, Lord, they are hurting me. Jesus says, it's a blessing if someone makes fun of you for following him. Do you know it's humiliating to be insulted? It's humiliating. It is. To be made fun of, it feels awful. So in what way can that be in any way good for us? How can it be good to be made fun of? Well, Jesus says it is a blessing because anyone who's treated badly, anyone who is made fun of, anyone who is mocked, anyone who is uh, publicly humiliated for my sake, for following me, will receive a great reward one day. Okay? You see, you can go on and on with the applications. What does this mean for me? But when you stop seeing the forest and only focus on the trees, when you stop living for the kingdom and just live for yourself, then you will lose sight of what God is ultimately wanting us to do. You will. He wants us to live as a kingdom people, and that means then to live against the grain of the world. I mean, just hear this in Psalm. In the Psalms, the Lord is merciful and gracious. This is, this is who our God is, Okay. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he always keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to, to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to, towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God, 
goes against the grain of the world. God has always displayed his character, has always displayed his promises in a way that went against the flow of the world. When we as members begin to think that life is about my wants and my needs and that mentality, unfortunately, but will trickle into our worship. When you start living as an individual saying, this is about me and my life, that will trickle into our worship. It will trickle into our corporate gatherings. We will then begin to see God as a being in which we can manipulate somehow. We're going to see God as someone we can manipulate to get what we want. So we begin to bargain with God and, and tell me, people, have you ever done this before? God, if you do this for me, I will do this for you. Right? If you do this for me, if you salvage my marriage, if you salvage my relationship, if somehow you get me into the Ivy League school, if you get me that job that I know I can never get by my own qualifications, God, if you get this, if you heal my mom, if you heal my sickness, if you do this, then I will do this for you. God, I, I have that job interview right now, but I got a punctured tire. God, if you somehow miraculously allow the interview to be delayed for another hour, then I will, I will tithe. I will go to church every single Sunday. I will commit myself to life group. I will do this for you. We begin to bargain with God. And if we do that, what does that mean? It means ultimately that we never worship God for being God. Rather, you actually worship yourself and hope that God will get on his bended knee and serve your purpose. And what happens in these church corporate gatherings then? with that type of individual type of mentality. It is, am I entertained? Right? Will I be accepted by everyone here? Will the church perform? This is something I heard many times before. <clears throat> I am here at Shining Star Community Church in hopes that this church is better for me than my previous church. Does that make sense? I hope this church will perform better for me than my previous one. I hope that this pastor will keep me awake with fun, kind of anecdotal, culturally relevant sound bites. Or will this praise team play in a style that mirrors our current uh, musical trends? You see, the list goes on and on and on and on. It's not so much about God be honored. God, how can, you, how can I be used to serve you? It's more about God, how can you honor me? How can I be served? Jacob was challenging a temptation that all the brothers faced and that we all in our 21st century here in America face as well, the so-called American virtue of individualism. And God, he made it clear from Genesis all the way to Revelation that this type of life has no place with his ancient people and still has no place with his church today. The thought that we should have, and I pray that this is the thought that we have from now on, as we love each other and as we labor together in this life of ours, is the que are the questions that we need to ask us, how can I lift up this person? To the person on my left and my right, you may think their life is okay, but you know deep down inside they're going through their own demons too. They're struggling with their own problems too. They have their own issues that they're facing. Maybe they're just better than you at covering it up. But you know what? You're, the thought isn't about how can I promote myself better or lift myself higher, but rather how can I lift this person up? Another question is, how can I love this person? In what ways can I serve this individual? I don't know them, but how about this? Get to know them. How can I love this person? 
How can I lift him up? How can I help this person? And that translates into the whole church. How can I lift up the church? How can I help the church? And how can I love this church? So how does God deal with his people as he builds his kingdom? And that goes to my next point. Oh, by the way, turn to your neighbor and say this. I want to love you. <laughs> but you make it so hard. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Don't say that. Sin has consequences. That's my second point. You know, when I was young, <clears throat> like elementary school, I had one desire that continually sprung up while I was at school. And that was, I wanted to use a pen. <laughs> Mechanical pencils were okay, right? But, but my school, for some reason, they didn't allow mechanical pencils. They only allowed number two pencils because of scantrons. And I'm thinking, that's so stupid. But they only allowed us to use number two pencils, and we used it for everything, General writing, all the science, math, arithmetic, all that stuff. Now, the thing is, I understand. I don't understand the number two part, to be honest. I know that only is compliant with the Scantron stuff. I'm like, then why do they make number three pencils at all, right? If only all Scantrons that the entire United States use can only be used with, Scantron, with number two. Anyways, um, I'm getting beside myself. But the more I, realize, more I use the pencil, the more I realize why it was important. Raise your hand if you're infallible. Right, none of us are. Meaning this, we make mistakes, right? We write, we add, we do things wrong. So there's this little fantastic tool at the end of this pencil. It's called the eraser, and I used it a lot. But when you use a pen, it suddenly kind of dawned on me, well, what am I supposed to do? I made a mistake. And so you kind of like, Gently scratch it out, right? But, but it doesn't really work, and teacher seriously doesn't like that. And before you say, well, Pastor David, they had pens with erasers. This was back in my day when those erasers were nothing but gimmicks, and they just smudged the ink. They didn't erase it, right? Now, this is my point. Life is kind of like that. Life is kind of like that. We think that when we say things like, I'm sorry, that it'll act as a big, fat eraser, and it will suddenly make things right. It will suddenly make things clean. But the truth is, there are a lot of things that can't be undone so easily. Simply put, our actions have consequences. Turn to your neighbor and say, it has consequences. And we see that in the first few verses of this chapter. First, there was Reuben. In verse 3, Jacob speaks of his firstborn son. And he says it in a pretty powerful and amazing way. He goes, he was Jacob's might. He was the sign of his strength. Reuben excelled in power. Reuben excelled in, in, in honor. And so Jacob's gracious and majestic words were, were undoubtedly a reflection of, his, of the natural pride that he had for his firstborn son. I, ha I have a son. He hasn't done anything but poop and eat and sleep. There's not, he hasn't accomplished anything in life. And yet for me, I'm thinking, my firstborn, I love him. He is the best. He is the absolute best. And so Jacob is kind of promoting. He's like, this is, he's my firstborn. I'm naturally just inclined to love and promote him. Hi, hi. But there, but you see, there was a dirty little secret in Reuben's life. Maybe you recall back in chapter 35. You see, when Jacob's wife, Rachel, died, Reuben, he tried to assert his, his leadership in, into the family. 
which would be all right if he wanted to, let's say, work hard for his family so that his family could have a little bit more or maybe provide financially a little bit more for his family so they'd be taken care of or maybe make wise financial or whatever decisions regarding the family's you know, overall kind of betterment or maybe, maybe he wanted to bring them closer to God and so make weekly kind of sacrifices and worship sessions so they can all gather and do that together. But no. You see, the way that Reuben wanted to assert his leadership into the family, the way that he wanted to assert his dominance and his authority into the family was to do it in the wrong way. And that was called the pagan way. So what did Reuben do? He slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. He slept with her. His actions were not only disgusting and perverse, but it was also a slap in the face to his father Jacob because he was, by sleeping with the handmaid, he was treating his father as if he were already dead. It was kind of like the prodigal son asking his dad for the inheritance, you know, the very thing that he would definitely receive once his dad died, but asking him for an advance was saying, hey, dad, can you give me what you're going to give me after you die? So in other words, he's saying, dad, you're already dead to me, so give me what I'm owed. You're already dead to me, so just give me, what, just give me my share. And so now after Reuben did this, weirdly at that point, his father Jacob never said anything about it. I mean, you would think they'd have some sort of family discussion, right? Son, that was really icky. That was really bad. But there's nothing said. But what was my second point? Sin has consequences. Folks, don't think you can ever just get away with sin. Sin doesn't allow you to get away with anything. God in his justice does not allow you to get away with anything either. Now perhaps you're wiping the sweat off your brow because you're thinking, oh, no, no, no. God's forgiveness of my sins means that it's like a big eraser. And so therefore all the bad and crummy and disgusting things I've done in my past are erased. And that sin, that sin it's like as if it never even happened. Well, folks, the act of sin might be momentary but the effects ripple on. We need to know that sins have consequences. And so now in verse 4, the glorious words of praise that Jacob was, was saying about his son, that he is excellent, that he is mighty, that he is honorable, it quickly turns to condemnation. He goes, it turns from, you are might, you are my might, you are preeminent in dignity and power. That quickly turns to, you are unstable as water. You shall not have any preeminence, which means you will not surpass others. You are not superior to any single person within this family. You are, in fact, unreliable. You will not excel. You will not play the part of the firstborn. You will not play the part of the, of the leader of this tribe. And he says, your place in this kingdom and in this family and in this community now is this, is one of insignificance. You are irrelevant. You are nothing because you have defiled my bed. Can you all say, whoa? That's exactly what happened with Reuben. 450 years later, when Moses had a similar prophecy about the tribes of Israel, 
Reuben's tribe is hardly mentioned. When Israel settled into Canaan, Reuben's tribe, they didn't get the lush, fertile area. No, they took the place on the fringes of the land. Each time a census was conducted to get the count of all the 12 tribes, Reuben's tribe number gradually dwindled. When God's judgment came upon Israel for their sins, it was the Reubenites who were the first to fall. In fact, the entire history of Israel, get this, no prophet. No king, no judge, no national hero, no one of any significance or any worth have ever come from the tribe of Reuben. Totally irrelevant. Totally insignificant. And let's get a little bit more specific with where Reuben went wrong. Even the word unstable can also be translated as uncontrollable, which means Reckless, which means destructive. So the image is kind of like this, like that of a pot boiling over with water. There is a sense of seething lust, uh, of unbridled, carefree license to do whatever he wants. That was the description of Reuben. That's how reckless he was. That's how wild he was. He was uncontrollable. He was undisciplined. He was acting like some spoiled little brat inside a candy store, taking, stealing, eating, doing whatever he wanted. And so his sins of the past disqualified him from the blessings of the future. And folks, let's make this real here for us. You can have the most potential in the world. Maybe you are quite successful. Maybe you're smart. You're clever. Maybe you work hard. You're highly motivated. But if you do not have self-control, especially in regards to this passage, in this context of sexual temptation, you will fall. You will fall, and you will become irrelevant. Why? Because Satan, he is just waiting for you. He is waiting for you. And he's just, like, he's got all the time in the world. And he's setting up his traps. And we can assume about Reuben is that, He didn't suddenly have this perverse thought about sleeping with his dad's concubine. Instead, he was slowly, likely, allowing that sin of uncontrolled lust to grow and grow and seep deeper and deeper into his being until it just swept him up. Folks, hear me. And I say this with love. But I say this as the Lord is admonishing us. You may be gifted gifted in so many ways, gifted to serve and elevate the church in ways that would just do amazing things for the church, for the members, for the community. But your gifts are worthless without godly character. You hear me? It is worthless without godly character. But not only that, we get from verses 5 to 7, the example of Simeon and Levi. Can you say, sorry, forget that. These two guys were brothers, and they were actually next in line behind Reuben. Sadly, they would not rule either. Back in chapter 34, when the family moved back to Canaan, their, fir- their sister Dinah started hanging out with the guys in town, the pagan guys. So one day, she, she really, by the way, liked this guy, the town's ruler's son named Shechem, but one day she gets raped by him. Now, Shechem, he still wanted Dinah, even though it was kind of a, an afterthought. And so he kind of, <clears throat> he went back to the family to marry Dinah, to propose to her. And so he brought dowry over so the two families can join as one. But then we see Simeon and Levi, and really their sin in this picture. Because they went through the motion of making a settlement. 
with this family, with Shechem and his family. But in reality, they, do, they didn't want peace with him. They didn't want that family to join their family. No, no. Instead, they were plotting a ruthless revenge. So they told Shechem, hey, you and all your guys, all the men of this town, are you, will, are you that committed and serious about joining our family? They said, absolutely. I want to marry, I want to marry into your family. I want to support your family. I want to love your family. And so the two brothers says, okay, if that's the case, then you got to do something that we do, which is circumcision. Are you willing to get circumcised? And which they gladly consented to. But on the third day, while the men were just super weak from the circumcision, Simeon, Levi, and, the, and, and, the, and their guys, they attacked and they massacred all the men. And to add insult to injury, then they plundered the entire city. Now at that time, if you recall, Jacob, he didn't say much about their wickedness. He just seemed more concerned about really their act- what their actions would mean for him. He's like, oh, I don't want- I'm going to be a stench to the neighbors. But now from this chapter, it's clear that he actually wants nothing to do with their sin. He was irate. So he curses their anger and, he- and their total disregard for the sanctity of life. Now here's the thing. Maybe, maybe right now you're thinking, okay, first of all, their sister just got raped. If I was, their, if I was her older brother, I'd probably do Far worse. Yeah, I'd be, I'd, be revenge, I'd be vengeful. Yeah, I'd put matters into my own hands. Yeah, I wouldn't trust the neighborhood justice system. I'd bring justice into my own hands. I'd do it all that stuff. So maybe we're all tempted to side with the brothers. But hey, listen to what Jacob says, or rather what he doesn't say. Jacob does not say, according to this verse, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce. And the wrath, for it was cruel. No, Jacob says, it is fierce, and it is cruel, meaning this. You displayed horrible anger and horrible judgment at that time, but guess what? That horrible anger and temper and that horrible judgment has been going on for the rest of your life. Does that make sense? Meaning this, these guys were still angry men. If these men were placed in a position of leadership, think of all the families that would be ruined by their anger, by their cruelty. You know, I remember talking to Grace. Um, not, this is after we got married. I remember asking her, hey, what would happen a deal breaker for you if you found out I was dealing with blank and blank, so-and-so, whatever? I said, fill in the blank. And she said, it would be anger and a temper. I don't know if I could deal with a husband when I'd come home just walking on eggshells each and every day, knowing that the slightest breeze would just, just tick him off. Uncontrolled anger results in senseless destruction. It destroys families. It destroys property. It destroys relationships. It destroys opportunities. It destroys your witness. It destroys you through and through. It destroys. It destroys. Anger is all about their, your own feelings. Because from anger, it stems from, it stems from selfishness, ultimately. It is, I didn't get it my way. I didn't get it my way. Now, <clears throat> to the millennials. This is, I'm not trying to insult you guys. I, I believe that many of you millennials here are saved by the grace of God. So you are not in this category. But did you know that the millennials now, right now, this generation of millennials, are considered the angriest generation? Isn't that interesting? You're like, but I'm so nice. Well, until you don't get things your way. Why? Look, by the way, every generation has its shortcomings. 
But you see, the, the, the stereotype, the understanding is that the millennials here, they're used to getting things their way. They got coddled at home, right? They get coddled at grade school. They get coddled in their liberal campuses by their liberal professors, by the liberal media. And so when they meet finally the real world, and the world doesn't work that way, and the world's not willing to give them their safe space, if you will, they get mad. They get frustrated. And they say, you are all broken. You are all at fault. I'm the victim here. And this isn't just for millennials. It's anyone who deals with anger. So we read that Jacob he would not give them any role in the leadership of their nation, and so they're cursed. They will be scattered in Israel, and that's exactly what happened. Simeon was given a small piece of land when Israel came into Canaan, but was partially within the territory of Judah, and so as Judah was being blessed and flourishing by God, they eventually swallowed up that territory, and not only that, the tribe of Simeon really just amounted to nothing. And then we have Levi. Levi's tribe wasn't given anything. They weren't given any property. Instead, they were scattered to live in 48 cities. They were scattered to live in the wilderness and the pasture lands and amongst other tribes. And so from there, they served the rest of the nation by teaching and working in the temple. And so maybe you're all thinking right now, I'm kind of screwed. Because there's probably a lot of us here who are dealing with anger. There's probably a lot of us here who are dealing with lust. And even if you're not dealing with those two specific sin issues, there's probably some other sin you're dealing with. I don't know what that is. Bitterness, jealousy, pride. And so it's true, guys. These sins, it threatens our souls. It threatens our life with God. So maybe right now, the way that I'm seeing you, you all feel quite, you all look quite dejected, quite hopeless. But there's one last point the Lord desires for us to hear today. Everyone say, praise God. This is my third point. God is in the business of reclaiming sinners like us. God is in the business of reclaiming sinners like us. Is God merciful? Amen. Is God forgiving? Amen. Is God gracious? Amen. Is God faithful? Amen. Is God loving? Amen. It seems pretty bleak right now, but you see, even in the midst of our dark consequences of shame and of guilt, the Lord, he lights a candle of grace. Let's talk about Levi. So our text tells us about the curse that was pronounced on him for his anger. And the curse came true. But did you know that there's more to the story? You see, in Exodus chapter 32, the Levites, they rallied around Moses to punish the idolatrous and fornicating and almost like pagan lifestyle living fellow brothers of their, of their nation. So God, he saw that and he favored them by setting the Levites apart and he gave them the priesthood in his sanctuary. So while it's true that they weren't given a portion of the promised land, instead God actually gave them something better eventually. You see, they received the Lord as their portion. So what happened? God, he turned judgment into blessing. He turned a scattered people into a sacred ministry. God, he rewarded the Levites with great prominence in God's kingdom. Did you know that? Moses was a Levite. Aaron was a Levite. Phinehas was a Levite. Eli, the priest, was a Levite. Did you know that Ezra was a Levite? And did you know that the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, was a Levite? If sin has consequences... 
like we just learned, but, but at the same time, God, he reclaims the sinners into salvation. How can both be true? How can God faithfully and rightfully administer justice, but at the same time show mercy to an undeserving sinner? And here it is. It can only be true because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You get that? Not because you can work yourself up and somehow deem yourself worthy of acceptance. Uh-uh. Every single religion in the world does that. They cannot. No one can be perfect. You see, God, he saw your sins. He saw my sins. And so he sent his son into the world. Jesus lived that perfect life, the holy life. He lived a life without sin. But then he was hung on the cross as an innocent man. God himself judged his own son, and punished him for the sins of his people. And it was there Jesus suffered until he exhausted the wrath of God, until he satisfied the wrath of God, at which time our Lord, he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished, meaning this, translate to this, paid in full. And so now God, he's able to reclaim sinners like you and me. God is able to love me, and save me and grant me mercy, get this, without sacrificing, without compromising his justice. And that's exactly what God is doing today for you all. For those who belong to Jesus, judgment is now turned to blessing, for there is now no condemnation in Christ. Can you say amen? This is why we have you fellow brothers going out yesterday at Giant or at GW and sharing this thing we call the good news. Because it is indeed good news. Do you see, by the way, the hopelessness in and of ourselves because of sin? Do you see how bleak it was when I went over the first two points? But Jesus, he delivers us from judgment by taking that consequence, that curse upon himself, and to those who surrender to his lordship and believe in his death and believe in his life and believe in his resurrection, that curse then turns to blessing. So maybe right now you feel condemned and guilty from all the sins of your past and even your present. You see, this is what God is saying. He's saying, hey, it is not the end. Come before the cross. Come before the cross and surrender it to Jesus because it's through Jesus God reclaims undeserving sinners like you and me. Can you say hallelujah? So remember, it's not about you. It's about the kingdom that we're in. So start living as someone who's part of this great community we call the church. But also know that and understand the dangers of sin and its consequences. But in all that, we can have hope in God because God is in the business of reclaiming sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray, but as we pray, whether you're a believer or not, it doesn't matter, but right now, say, Lord, reclaim me today. I have walked away from you for so long. Reclaim my heart. These sins that I'm struggling with, these temptations that are, just, that are just bombarding me left and right, God, would you reclaim me? Would you protect me? Would you guard me? Take a moment and pray. Or maybe the issue is you still have a sense of individualism. You're afraid of commitment, not just in a relational standpoint, but in terms of your church. I can't commit. I don't want to commit because you're shelving everything. 
You're saying, what if there's something better? Better for what? For you? But then that just shows exactly where your heart has been. That's about seeking worship rather than seeking to worship God. Now is the time to pray and repent and just give it to the Lord. Okay, so let's just take, just take a couple minutes to pray and we'll go into our last song.